Hi everyone and welcome to Focal Point, the IMB Imaging Podcast. Welcome, I'm Harriet, your host, and I'm joined by the other members of the IMB clinical team. So a big hello and Happy New Year to Sam. Happy New Year, everyone. And we have Amy. Hello, Happy New Year, guys. And Bethany. Hi, everyone. Happy New Year. As always, we're going to be chatting about a topic related to the field of diagnostic imaging. And to kickstart 2022, we've chosen to discuss the uses of contrast. So whether you use it regularly, would like to start using it to enhance your diagnostic images, or would like to learn a little more about contrast in cross-sectional imaging, hopefully we can help you. Um, With this, I'm pleased to welcome Amanda Walsh to the podcast. Amanda is a human radiographer and the unit manager at the Fylde Coast Diagnostic Centre and Wrightington MRI unit. So hello, Amanda. Hello, um, thanks for the invite and Happy New Year, everybody. So as we know, contrast is most commonly used to opacify or delineate specific organs and structures. But when should we be using contrast, especially in routine general practice? And how do we decide positive versus negative contrast agents? Well, I suppose a good place to start would be thinking about the what the common contrast agents people might be using in, in practice are. So I think we probably have um, at least a, a couple, uh, which would be the main ones being kind of an iodine-based contrast given IV. We probably use sort of barium contrast, which is given peros. And um, then there will also be air, which is sometimes used in bladder studies. So I think those are are the main ones that people will be using um, more regularly in routine general practice. But um, there's probably specific situations where we use each. So can anyone think of some some scenarios or cases where they've used any of those contrasts or what they've used them for? Yeah, certainly in general practice, I would have used negative contrast, positive contrast, and then double contrast for looking at bladders, for instance. That would probably be a situation where we would use things the most. So air obviously being a negative contrast media, it appears black on x-rays, hence the term negative. So if you were to add some air to a bladder followed by some positive contrast media such as iodine, you would be able to delineate the bladder wall structure really nicely. can show you things like cystitis and can show you blood clots and sort of the degree of the internal changes of the bladder on x-ray. Equally, if you just add positive contrast media to the bladder, you can actually confirm the position of the bladder, the size and whether there is a wall filling defect, potentially bladder rupture, for instance, in an RTA. That would be situations where I've used it the most. Also can delineate little uroliths quite nicely in the bladder, particularly ones that are not radio-opaque on straightforward x-rays what's the word for straightforward survey radiographs it can also highlight tiny little calculi and sort of calculi sludge in the urethra as well so very very useful that way just a note on safety there with pneumocystograms is that we need to be laying our patients in left lateral currency um, during the procedure this is so to reduce the risk of causing an air embolism 
Uh, also, if we do have access to carbon dioxide, this should be used preferentially to room air. Although obviously room air is more available and it's much cheaper, carbon dioxide has a higher solubility in the blood and therefore is less likely to cause an air embolism. Yeah, that's some there's some great uh, great tips. Another a good one I always heard when you're performing um, urinary contrast studies was that once you've placed a sort of urinary catheter, the um, v- volume of the urine that you remove from the, the urinary bladder can be a useful guide as to how much uh, volume to put back in as well to avoid kind of over dilation of that uh, organ and damage too and um, so that's something I've found useful before is thinking about it that way as a bit of a guide for not putting too too much in terms of volume into certain situations. Have any of you guys in practice ever done a um, intravenous urethrogram? I have, but it was a, a little while ago. So I think if you ask me any technical details about it, that I would probably struggle to remember the details of the individual case. But I have used them before to highlight the um, renal collecting system and the urethras and their position within the abdomen. Can you remember at all like a kind of brief description of of how you went about it or anything like that or or the indications or anything like that Sam not confidently enough I'd want it on a podcast (laughs) it was that long ago that I did it I mean I'm pretty sure with the IVUs you're using an iodinated contrast medium which is given intravenously and then you time the taking of the radiographs usually a sort of a ventral dorsal dorsal ventral would be kind of classic so you can see both sides and I, w- I want to see this sort of renal phase of the contrast being expelled is for some reason in my head I want to see it's like four to six minutes is that going to be right or am I just totally making that up this is just with this was no prior research or not having done it for a little bit of time and um, but there, there's sort of a timing where you time the sort of phases to sort of see it and then you can see the kind of collection of the contrast within the renal pelvis and then entering the sort of urethras and then it, it is taken down the urethras in um, peristaltic kind of waves so you can sometimes see that Hi, I was just going to say in the human world, we used to do an awful lot of IVUs. And like Sam said, you do timed films. So you do the intravenous urogram like via an IV injection, and then you do specific examinations, specific x-rays at certain time frames then you get the patient to go and empty the bladder and you don't do a post-micturation film they are hardly ever ever done now because of the advent of ct so people have now non-contrast ivus or they'll have a contrast ct urogram now so that the advent of ivus in the human world is is negligible a bit like the barium and the and the reason that these are basically non-existent anymore in the human world is because what people found well what radiologists found was that when they were actually reporting them because of the the positive contrast it was actually hiding lots of stones in the tract so what it was doing is it was showing everything up lovely bright and white which is what we want for contrast but actually the the stones were actually being covered so now they do um, a non-contrast very plain quick low dose ct through and then that shows up in your calculi 
That That's really interesting because we have a similar thing in the veterinary world where if you fill a bladder with positive contrast, you'll sometimes obscure the stones unless you've also added air. So we would do a double contrast for things like that. So it's quite interesting to see the similarities there. Well, I was going to ask because if you did a CT IVU, the excretion of the contrast agents would be the same. So when would you time a CT IVU after contrast administration? Because it must be the same as when you take the radiograph because it can it's the sort of essentially the same kind of chemical compounds so it must be at the same phase so yeah you're correct so it's slightly different with ct so obviously when we're ever using contrast media you always have to do a pre-contrast that is your basis and then what, what we would do is probably a triple phase which is an arterial phase portal venous phase and then a delayed phase and we would normally do these at three minutes post-injection for the first delayed, and then the second delay would be five minutes. If potentially when you're doing the five minutes delayed and you wanted to see the bladder, then you could empty the patient's bladder and scan them again. But those tend to be the timing, so arterial is anywhere between zero and 25 seconds, and then portal venous anything between 30 and 50, and then delayed on from there. Thank you. That's very interesting. Uh, The other thing I was going to say in the human world, because we do so much CT now and we always have to have an EGFR prior to a CT contrast administration and MR these days, it's an estimated glomerular filtration rate. So basically we're looking how fast the kidneys can clear the contrast media. So there are certain levels set by the Royal College of Radiologists, the RCR. For instance, we had a lady today who had a very low EGFR of 32. So we always have to make sure that the radiologist is happy for us to continue because that basically these are people that are maybe prone to chronic kidney infections and chronic kidney diseases so can't do with the assault of a lot of contrast within the kidneys and it hanging around because they've got such bad filtration rate so anybody who's got a low EGFR and that is quite a standard now won't have contrast so something like this we would do plain CTs anyway so there's quite a lot of safety within MR contrast media and CT contrast media. And if it's interesting, I can briefly talk about it because we only use sort of low osmolar or isoosmolar non-ionic contrast media um, in CT. So the non-ionic is better and safer and less reactions because it doesn't dissociate. So basically it stays as the molecule. The osmolality of the contrast media is very important. In the olden days, when I was a very first little radiographer, we used quite high osmolar ionic contrast media. So a lot of patients vomited, and I don't know whether you get that in the animal world. So we find now that as safety has become more important and CT is so prevalent, and 80 to 85% of patients having CTs have contrast, that that we use ISO or low osmolar. So we use a contrast media that has a very similar or the same osmolality as the blood plasma. So you you lessen the reactions. So it's much safer. I mean, Bethany's very lucky. She doesn't she hasn't seen, you know, patients don't vomit like they used to. They don't go into um, shock. It's great. And then in terms of MRI, we only use cyclic. MRI, gadolinium-based contrast medias because of NSF and the dissociation again of the gadolinium, which is very toxic as a free metal. So it's really, really stringently, I can't uh, think like, of the it's word. Like, it's like well, it's monitored, guidelines, it's guidelines. Yeah. We have very strict guidelines in the human world about the MR and CT contrast media. And 
I wasn't sure if it was the same in the veterinary world yet. I, we could come on to whether it's the same in a bit, but I was just going to ask, so you mentioned N- NSF. What, what was What's that? So about, oh gosh, it must be about 15 years ago now, Sam, there was a Danish radiologist who found this disease and it's nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. And basically, again, it's to do with the kidneys and contrast media, again, the linear contrast medias, which were like Omniscan and Magnavis, they were the massive portion of contrast media that we used in the human MR world, were a linear compound. So they weren't, the gadolinium wasn't chelated as well. So it wasn't, it wasn't sort of bound in. So free gadolinium, which is extremely toxic because it's a heavy metal, a rare, a rare earth heavy metal, I think it is, collected in places like the diaphragm and the kidney, and it could make your skin go to orange peel. It was really, really dangerous. And it was found in studies that it was to do it was linked to linear contrast MR contrast media so all the linear contrast medias in Europe not in all countries but in Europe were banned because it they, they had confounded cases and unconfounded cases so they couldn't pin it down to one linear molecule but it was deemed that the cyclic molecules which are the gadavist and the dotarems were the ones that were safe to use in clinical human practice does that explain it all? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I just again, that's something that we that I don't think any many vets will really know about or have heard of. So it's very interesting. It might be something that people could look up, the vets could look up, just see, you know, the impact that it's had on the human world, decimated the choices, but we've got really safe choices now. It's a bit like so CT and MR contrast media has changed dramatically in my career. I think as well, because a lot of the imaging expertise with the CT and the MR come from the human world, a lot of the time the supplies for the imaging would also come from the human world. So when I've been in contact with vets, they quite often speak to whoever provided the scanner, and then they would then speak to their specialist, which is normally human. So we they tend to use all the same contrast that we do. So I assume that it'd be similar guidelines, yeah. really. It's about, yeah, I can imagine it is. I'm, I'm not completely sure of the guidelines. Kind of going back to... I Ionic versus non-ionic you get this very similar signs with ionic contrast in animals so you do get vomiting you do get pulmonary edema you can get acute renal failures hypertension allergic reactions and seizures so it was non-ionic was more expensive but thankfully as times have changed it's now become more affordable and i don't think that many practices really have ionic contrast anymore i think really the only brand name that leaps to mind for me for iodine is omnipake practice is that much the same for for you guys as well yes yeah omnipake is a niapam and Optire are sort of the big ones in the human market. Yeah, I've never worked with anything but, and so... If, if you think about your career and then my career, so mm. for, I've been qualified since 2014 and I've never seen anything else but Omnipate or Dotrim or Gadavis. So mm. I would say that most clinical radiographers nowadays would only use them up, obviously, with the guidelines. Just a question to you guys. Do you think the veterinary world would ever start doing blood tests pre-administration of contrast to assess your patient's EGFRA, something similar, would you ever consider going to that Like the stringent direction? levels that we apply of having blood documented, then potentially signed off by a radiologist, you mean, and then yeah. obviously hydration protocols after. Yeah. Is that something that they have in place in practice? Yeah. 
because we also used to have no eating because of the vomiting from the previous So patients were, you know, they weren't given any fluids. So they used to come down in a pretty bad way to start with. And then we'd give them high osmolar ionic contrast media. Whereas now we encourage hydration. We don't stop people eating, you know, so hydration is really important for the blood vessels as well, obviously for cannulating and all those things. And we encourage hydration post-study as well. Yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting. I mean, on the sort of patient preparation, it's, it's very different in the veterinary side compared to the human side because w- our patients can't stay still. So a lot of the times we're having to perform um, CT or an MRI would be performed under sort of a general anaesthetic or, or very heavy sedation potentially, depending on the modality and the situation they're generally because of that there often are periods of starvation being in general practice there hasn't been a situation where I've been asked to take blood specifically for renal parameters for a patient to undergo a CT but it wouldn't surprise me and and Harriet and Amy might have some insights into this as to whether some places where they're regularly using it are doing pre-screening bloods that would which would look at some form of renal function and often that may have been done in the workup of the patient anyway it might not get to the same kind of glomerular filtration rate tests in terms of that level but there might be some sort of examination of it there's also sort of the 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 sort of decisions around the kind of cost benefit of the the sort of ct or the diagnostic procedure to the patient as well too so that sometimes will factor into it as to whether certain tests will be done will will be on the the sort of circumstances of the individual case so there's always these slightly different considerations that we have that human medics that don't don't have to deal with necessarily. And of course, there's the same the other way. There's different considerations in human medicine with people being very long lived and more likely to having certain consequences of medications that we might not see in animals as well. So that's where sort of these differences arise. But in my opinion, most of the sort of veterinary practice tends to very closely sort of mirror or kind of follow human medicine. So if these things tend to be commonly performed, it would be usually over time they will be kind of factored in because it's a constantly improving. Just following on what Sam said, I would expect, you know, if, if an animal is going for doing an, an IVU or is going for contrast CT of its, say, its kidneys, then its renal functions would have been assessed beforehand. I know post-contrast you are supposed to look at the USG, so the urine-specific gravity, the blood urea, nitrogen levels, serum creatinine levels and the PCV just to see if there is any change. We are still withholding patients food 12 to 24 hours before we before we do perform any contrast studies and although we are it is said that we should correct dehydration so exactly like in the human world and the patient should be fully hydrated before they have any contrast put into them. A couple of other things that I thought might be interesting and make might sort of come into your world. One was the strength of the contrast media. There's been a big move not to use the higher strength, so the like the 350s. So because the CT scanners now are so sensitive and the detectors, there's so many of them, and we can get away with using lower KVPs, so less power to the CT beam. But that in turn means that we can use lower strengths of contrast media and get really good contrast, you know, the, the you can see the contrast as well. So we use a lot of weight-based dosing, lower volumes, lower flow rates. So that is the big way that 
the human world is is moving to to again use the least amount and we also use a lot of multi-dosing in a in a very safe way so you can tailor you can use it you can get a big sort of 500 mil volume bottle of contrast and give a, a 38 48 kilogram person very light you know a, a minimum amount of contrast media and then obviously if you get a 100 kilogram man you can tailor the dose accordingly to the the examination and the patient habitus as well so that is really key by looking at the factors that you're giving the patient and your patients are all smaller so you could probably get away with we still stick to weight-based contrast but you could stick to lower kvs, KVs. yeah well. absolutely no and it, do, it does enhance that and it's um it's been a really beneficial thing with contrast I remember when I left the human world, we were giving about 50 mils and then using saline boluses to chase the contrast through, especially when we were looking at pulmonary embolisms, we would inject a 50 mil and then chase it with another 50 mil saline to push it through. And that was really, really effective. This might be a little outdated, but it's just to refer to the equine world, just because you can't, apart from horse limbs, can't really put them through MRI. Do you do much myelography in the human medicine anymore? Or has it been phased out by MRI? Yeah, hardly do any. Hardly do any myelography. The only time I suppose we might do the odd one is if there's contraindications, you know, from a safety perspective. I'd say like a pacemaker or some implant that the patient had. But even pacemakers now, that the right type of pacemaker can be scanned in an MRI scanner. It's quite complicated, but they can do. So occasionally we'll do them, but obviously not the frequency that we did. I, I have a question that something that I found really interesting, again, coming from a background where being in general practice have not had access to 3D imaging modalities like CT and MRI. Something that I found quite interesting and, and I wonder if, if many people are sort of aware of is the sort of injector systems that are used for CT and MRI, because that's something, again, if, if I was performing, say, an IVU or, or a, a contrast study, it would be placing it a urinary catheter and intravenous cannula and then giving the contrast through that. We never used pressure injectors. And it was quite interesting when I saw practice at places eventually where they had their CT in use and they were using these more complex injector mechanisms. So it'd be really interesting to hear a bit more about those and sort of the experiences of them and how they're used. Yes, yeah, so I just wanted to quickly just brief over this because we've obviously got the expert with us this evening. So I don't need to say too much. In the veterinary world, we don't routinely have many power injectors with our 3D imaging. However, the practices who have taken it on find it really beneficial. So obviously you don't miss the contrast as you would with a handy injection and it's much safer because nobody actually has to enter the room as you're scanning. So there's lots of benefits towards it, but we are, it's something that I think is, should be gold standard really and should be used to optimise all images. But I'll hand you over to the specialist. Oh, that'll be me then. So yeah, in the human world, power injectors are pretty much 100% used, especially in CT. You can use smaller amounts of contrast media. You can keep it in a bolus. It's delivered in a nice, you know, if you set a three mils a second, you're going to deliver three mils a second to that patient rather than trying to push highly viscous, hard to inject contrast media at a steady rate. It also means that when you're scanning, you can be sure that you can get the, um, capture the contrast at exactly the right um, part of the anatomy where you need it. You can 
compensate for cardiac output, patient's condition. You know, there's lots of reasons. In the human world, we were doing sort of single patient injections. So you'd put on a fresh syringe with a fresh bottle of contrast for each patient. But that is very expensive. And as you know, we're doing hundreds and hundreds of these examinations every day. So what's come into um, play now in the human world are multi-dosing, multi-use systems. So they'll have a 24-hour day set with a big bag of saline and a big bottle of contrast and you'll just swap the part that goes to the patient so the patient line and obviously the cannula and then that means like I was saying before that you can deliver exactly what you need to the patient in MRI it's not used as much you use it for the dynamic things so sort of cardiac renals carotids we use it in prostates livers but all the things the general sort of lumps and bumps like brains pituitaries necks anything that's a lump or a bump or a tumor we still hand inject in mri hardly ever in ct yeah i would also say in the human world in ct the only time in my entire career i've done a hand injection is when the power injector broke <laughs> and we didn't want to cancel the patients so we geared ourselves up to get hand injecting and we all had to like prep ourselves because trying to inject 70 mils of contrast even when it's warm it's such a viscous fluid you had to really almost bend into it and use your strength but power injectors are the gold standard and the norm in the human world and I think if we tried to integrate that into the veterinary world it would only improve imaging quality it would probably mean and I don't know because obviously I don't ever work in the veterinary world that going forward you might have to have groups of patients so you could do you could justify a power injector and would lots of practices come together would small practices all refer to a tertiary center or a specialist center and you know there are places that could probably justify a power injector these days because it could be used you know yeah in a wider that's what we're seeing so I think Mm. I've been to three practices that have it and they do get a lot of referrals in that could justify the use of a power injector but equally there's different buying options so you can Mm. buy them directly from a supplier or you can buy them secondhand so there's lots of ways and they're really really user friendly and easy to use I would say but yeah I think it it will become gold standard because the images a lot of the time in in the veterinary world what you see is people trying to hand inject and it's a massive dog and they want a really beautiful arterial chest and they've hand injected and by the time you actually scan it's It's portal venous or it's gone out the system and then you don't want to re-inject because it's such a large amount or the patient might have contraindications and then you're in this you're in this zone where yes you've given a dose to a patient and that's important but you've not really got a a, a very accurate diagnosis because your your contrast isn't in the right phase. Just a quick question do human patients ever report strange sort of feelings of contrast entering the body or anything like that or or any strange reactions other than what you've already discussed with the ionic ones of olden times with the sort of vomiting and stuff like that? So in my experience in radiography I've seen little tiny tiny amount of reactions I've only ever seen one MRI reaction for it to uh, Dota it was and it was a young female and she came out in hives automatically and it really shocked me because in CT 
obviously the training is so vigorous, you expect people to be reactive to it. Whereas in CT, uh, with every patient we see and every patient we're going to have contrast for, we have to do all the blood checks and then potentially get them signed off by radiologists. And then we also have to talk them through what we're going to do. So we're going to cannulate and give them this contrast. And with humans, it gives you a strange feeling. So it makes you very hot all of a sudden. And that's why some people do feel quite sickly after contrast, because if you've just wolfed down some Rice Krispies and then you've gone for your CT scan and then you've just got a hot flush from head to toe, quite often that does, you know, account for people vomiting. And then the second thing it does to you, it makes you feel like you're passing urine. So no matter how full your bladder is or not unfortunately you know you don't I've never had anyone actually do it but it's just that feeling I think it's because of the heat obviously when humans pass urine it's always hotter than the area it's coming out of so it does mimic that I've had people look at me and go have a weed have a weed and they never have and yeah they get quite a metallic-y like blood taste in the mouth I would say so there's quite strange reactions. Some people say, I will never have that again. It made me feel barbaric. Some people don't mind at all, but nearly every patient I've ever scanned in CT has always said, I think I've wet myself and they, they never have. It's just a feeling. But what about back in the day? All the time I've been doing CT and MRI, I've hardly ever seen any, any reactions in MRI but in CT, the small reactions are just the ones that Bethany's discussed. The only other things I've seen many huge reactions with the ionic contrast media. But fortunately, those are very few and far between. And if they're going to happen in CT, they happen. Not about 95% of them happen within the first five minutes. So this is why in the human world, we always try and keep our patients for 10, 15 minutes post-contrast. In MRI, we just let them tootle off as soon as they're happy and they're not bleeding everywhere and they've got instructions. And we, we instruct both MRI and CT patients to keep well hydrated, obviously because of the kidney. I think excretory roots. That that's also down to research because there's not been as many reactions to the MRI contrast. Mm. That's why we're a bit more lenient with it. I remember scanning a patient, and she only had quite a small amount of contrast in CT, and I sat her back up. And she was absolutely fine. She was chatting away and I got her in a wheelchair and I started to wheel her out the room and the room was quite large. So it, I was, it, it took me a bit of time. And then she just started sneezing. So she had one sneeze and I just stopped and I thought, oh heck, have we got a bit of reaction on here? And then the sneezing became more and more and more and she actually ended up going into cardiac arrest. She was fine. She survived. But I just thought, goodness, if this room had been shorter and I'd put her out in the waiting room and kind of forgotten about her, which is, you know, can happen, especially with inpatients, that could have, that could have been a lot worse so I think we're taught to look out for signs such as sneezing or feeling a bit sick and bits and bobs like that and obviously humans can verbalize yeah. how they're feeling you've Absolutely. all got to second guess haven't you how your patients are feeling much harder the only question I had actually was what is the application of using contrast and CT so the one that springs to my mind is um, obviously neoplastic reasons but what are the other reasons that you would use contrast and CT for gosh there's a massive list so all the cardiac CT but not looking at calcification in the coronary arteries that's plain pulmonary embolisms anything i mean we do lots of or we do lots of um taps so thorax abdopelvis so a lot of screening a lot of cancers are looking for lymph nodes gosh it's probably it's it's probably a a shorter list to say what we don't use it for yes which would potentially be an ivu 
yeah and anything potentially orthopedic and then something that they've introduced in the past five years is something we call high resolution ct chest which is a really low dose and that tends to be screening for like tb or copd but apart from that i would say every other examination including a brain would always be given contrast unless it's a stroke unless it's a stroke of course because you would cover if you scanned a, a, a somebody's brain in ct and they had a stroke and you injected contrast then you would miss it but this is why we always do a pre and a post because then you've got that direct comparison and you can figure that out oh, this is this is really interesting so I, i've i've got another question as well that just wanting to ask i know we've been we've been talking a little bit about we sort of started a little bit talking about plain film radiography and then we sort of mentioned how in the human world it's very rare contrast studies are done that way because of ct and, and mri existing and i think the same trend is happening in veterinary medicine now as well is that people do them less often um, for the same reasons because of the the sort of imaging modalities like ct and mri and, and what they offer what would be really interesting is what do you think is the sort of maybe in kind of terms of, of kind of contrast and things what's sort of the future what's the sort of latest things in human medicine that people are maybe using contrast or, or contrast is being adapted towards what do you see happening because that these are the kind of things that might be a future trend for kind of veterinary patients so i suppose the first that comes to my mind was a we changed to weight-based contrast which was big Everyone used to just get a standard dose, depending on what we were looking at for in the body. And then the other thing would be bolus chasing of the saline. So then that was able to reduce the amount of contrast we were giving people. But with that saline just pushing behind it, our images weren't ever compromised with quality. So that would be what I would say potentially is net then going to filter into the uh, veterinary world from human in ct i would just say the technology is just getting faster and faster so you can image a whole heart in one revolution so you're talking about sub-second imaging of, of a heart the coverage because the detectors are getting larger as well so the, there's another thing called i'm just trying to remember it it's called spectral ct so basically they are looking at using tiny amounts of contrast and the way the contrast reacts and being able to diagnose things again mainly in the heart and as you can tell I haven't got a lot of experience but it's sort of the speed and the detectors and using less and less contrast media now i mean we've gone to 3t and there was talk of going there are a couple of 7t scanners but they're only very small bore but i would say in mri all the manufacturers because of all the problems that there were and there has been with mr contrast media with the nsf and only using cyclic they are all trying to develop sequences that you don't have to use contrast with so i think in the future we won't use very much mri contrast media but i don't see ct abating at all i just think it'll continue to grow and grow because the demand i was going to say and i think it was something that sam said that made me think about this i do feel in the human world it's gone a bit ct crazy that somebody will come into an a and e consultant or whoever's seeing the patient will just ask for a fairly you know almost a whole body ct without consideration to exactly what really the patient needs so it's sort of taken some of the expertise out of clinically diagnosing issues to let's go and get a whole body ct we'll look at the images 
and then we'll think about it later. So this is part of the sort of the the onslaught of CT in the human market and how mad it's gone and how busy it is and how it's expanding all the time that everyone just get, gets a CT. And, you know, we have to think about the radiation and the implications and the long-term risk benefit to everybody and how that really is managed. The other thing I think that is always important to keep in mind with um, CT and contrast is it is beyond beneficial and it's so necessary in a lot of cases however you know use well it's great but you can get quite a lot of artifacts on your CT image from contrast and that is something always to bear in mind and something we touched on before is actually covering pathology so there are contrast is brilliant and it should be widely used and it enhances images but there is still there's always a trade-off in balance so it's always important to bear that in mind. That could be with the strength of the contrast media and the volume that you use for your patients as well. Yeah. I was just wondering, could you guys describe some of the artifacts you would see with contrast and CT that that would be relevant to veterinary? I can say one. Yeah, I can probably say one. So you can get a lot of beam hardening. If your contrast is very dense, your x-ray beam, you get sort of spikes out from it. So it's like streaks through the image. And that's because your contrast is far too dense because you've used too much of it and it's not going around so I would imagine in your patients which are much smaller you're going to have to be really careful on how you administer contrast media and and look at the very low lower strengths so you don't get anything like this you know this type of effect so that's one thing I can think of no it's the, the main the one it's the main one that we get um which is called a streak artifact and as you've just described the contrast is so dense that the the x-ray beam can't actually get through so what happens is as it's the ct data is trying to analyze itself it's actually being blocked by the contrast so you're actually losing data from your patient and it just literally is a streak across your image Mm -hmm. Um, and obviously that can be really detrimental if you're looking at something in the chest and it catches a vessel and you've got this streak artifact and the beam hardening you could actually potentially cover up or miss a pathology but as you described using a lower contrast would potentially help so i had a couple of cases of this in ireland where they were using 400 strength contrast media and they were doing pulmonary um, emboli or they were doing ctpa to look for pulmonary emboli and there was just this huge white blob so you couldn't see pulmonary artery you couldn't see anything and i had to quite tactfully say you know you could be covering up something here you know you need to just so it's always (laughs) trying to put the the right contrast media with the right examination at the right flow rate and and the right volume so it's really important not just to whack in 20 mils of whatever you've got in your hand it does it there's more thought around it that needs to be done than people really give it credit for and it's you know I'm talking about the human market you know people we're so used to contrast media as radiographers and radiologists that it's just something that we always use instead of actually thinking our technology is helping drive us driving us to give more consideration to those factors regarding the contrast media and the delivery and capturing it at the right time to give the best benefit to that patient's outcome and diagnosis yeah just because it's stronger doesn't mean it's better it can actually be detrimental so it's just really important to consider well that's been really interesting learning about contrast in cross-sectional imaging i guess the last contrast that we haven't touched upon yet is uh barium well to be honest i don't think there's that much really to talk about do you do you feel like it's sort of that barium's fallen out of favor 
a little bit as we move through time. I, I tend to find that it's a little bit something that some of the older generations of vets would do more potentially than we would do. But um, I don't think it might be it, largely up to personal preference in practice. Like I've been a vet for nine years and I have never used barium. No, I'm the same. I think it's even changed in the fact that we're no longer even using barium liquid. So it's now gone on to BIPs. So, you know, there's barium impregnated polyethyl fizz, which are still do the same same job, still show motility through the gastrointestinal tract. But we haven't got that risk of aspirational pneumonia with the liquid barium. And if you ever see those x-rays where the dog has inhaled barium, they're pretty spectacular. Yeah, I, I think my my theories on, on sort of barium is that it, it was widely used in the past and there's still applications for barium studies and especially people that have used them in the past tend to be a bit more confident with them. I don't think that I've really ever heard it used for colon studies in veterinary either of you, Harriet. I think we learned about it at university, but I've I've only ever seen it used for upper GI. And then even then, you have to be really careful if the reason that, you know, they're inactant or vomiting isn't caused by, you know, a small rupture somewhere because they're then contraindicated for that as well. So what I find interesting about barium and my kind of theory on it is that it, it, it was used a lot more historically and people I, I suppose people who vets who are older and who came through the time where the, it was used more routinely have a bit more confidence in the use of barium and BIP studies compared to sort of I suppose younger inverted commas vets because they're not using it that often but my theory on the barium is not just the the effect of the 3d imaging modalities i actually think the ultrasound technology has had a big impact on using it for gi studies because ultrasound offers a real-time modality and as the resolutions improved and the systems improved people can actually assess sort of the 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 motility of the intestinal tract through ultrasound they can get some information about the um uh, the gi tract wall and the surrounding structures so i just wonder if it's one of those things where yes in the in the in the past where ultrasound technology wasn't as widely used barium was used more and with the advent of sort of an improvement of other imaging modalities i think that slightly superseded it so that's my theory anyway it could be wrong i think that's a very good theory sam really good i guess it fits because i've never felt the need that i've i've needed to use barium because a combination of plain radiographs and ultrasound has has answered the question i also felt often that potentially if you did diagnose an obstruction or foreign body using barium perhaps you wouldn't want to do an enterotomy or a gastrotomy with barium in the gastrointestinal tract as well i think it yeah exactly from what i was saying i think it's actually it's contraindicated if you do a barium post study so i can't understand why it wouldn't be contraindicated doing the um, I mean post-surgery so I can't understand why it wouldn't be contraindicated doing post like doing the surgery post barium you're just going to increase the risk of you know leaking barium into the abdominal cavity that is everything I think we've very much exhausted all sorts of contrast it's been a great insight to contrast radiography especially learning what happens on the human side so thank you all for joining me and thank you to everyone who's listened we hope you've enjoyed the podcast and learned a little more about contrast radiography we'll be back next month for another episode of focal point until then please do visit our social media platforms for lots more great content to help improve your imaging skills so it's a uh, goodbye from all of us thanks Amanda and goodbye goodbye
Bye. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me.